This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Before we get to our next guest, I want to take a quick call here. We've been talking about nurses, how they are burned out. We heard there uh, from our guest, Helen Winter, a registered nurse, that half of her colleagues have left the profession because of the stress and uh, all the uh, pressure from living through the COVID crisis. Beverly and Milton, what are your thoughts? Oh, hi. I would like first to say to give accolades to anyone in the health care that, that has worked through all of this COVID. Uh, I'm retired, so I, I've been more fortunate to be able to stay out of the, out of the uh, rush. However, what I would like to say is originally the nurses voted for uh, 12-hour shifts, and their reasoning was the uh, uh, patient uh, care would be a lot better. I thoroughly, uh, you know, I agree if that's the way you feel. However, with technology the way it is, I believe that patient care can be looked after, one, with less time in the hospital for the nurses. Two, you employ more nurses. Cut back on the hours. Employ more nurses. And Instead of worrying about your wage, worry about pension and worry about health care for the nurses. And I do have one question. Uh, it's about the vaccine. If we do have a passport uh, and we have the third vaccine, how is that going to work? Well, I guess that would Thank be you very, very oh, much. You're welcome, now Beverly. I will listen. Okay. Thank you for calling with your perspective. We appreciate that as well. Uh, on the vaccine passport, the QR code would include that information about a third shot uh, when we start to get boosters. Uh, and we'll hear more about that this week. We are expecting to hear more from Premier Ford, uh, maybe as early as tomorrow about that. Dr. Ayal Golan joins us now. Dr. Golan is an intensive care doctor at McKenzie Health's Cordelucci Vaughan Hospital. Uh, welcome, Dr. Golan. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. I'll begin by getting your thoughts on what seems to be an, a nursing crisis in Ontario. Uh, I, if you're referring to the the letter, the open letter that was written, um, I, 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 I was not involved in that, so I, I can't really comment. I would say, though, that the critical care nurses the, the, in the eMERGE or in the ICU, they're, they're truly wonderful. They're almost angels on earth, these nurses. So uh, I support the nurses more than I support almost any other group just because they are, they're the foundation, they're the backbone. So I, I do hope that um, we could figure out how to make sure they get that uh, recognition. Um, but the, the, I think everybody is burnt out. Everybody's tired. I think that's the general public. I think that's the nurses. That's the respiratory therapists who also don't get out all the accolades and the physicians as well. So I think everybody's tired. And I think the general public as well is tired of COVID as, and, you know, wave after wave. So I think it's in all of society. Tell us about the evolution of COVID patients you've seen in the ICU during the various waves. Yeah, so I, um, as, as you know, Jane, I, I work at Corlucci Vaughan. So just to give you a bit of background, uh, that is a, a brand new hospital that was initially intended to be a full service hospital with all the surgeries and obstetrics and pediatrics and medicine and critical care. And when the third wave hit, or just before the third wave hit, uh, the hospital actually volunteered uh, with uh, the approval of the government to be the COVID center uh, and be the relief valve for a lot of the hospitals. So we ended up not opening all the services for about four month period and we just became COVID. And the ICU was entirely all COVID and the general ward was also COVID predominantly. I think it was nearing 100% of all patients had COVID and we were able to take a lot of the patients away from other hospitals that were in, in, in need. So we, we actually saw uh, a huge number of COVID patients. We became the only hospital in the country that 
uh, was a designated COVID hospital, and we saw double the numbers of COVID than any other hospital in Ontario. So I think we've been through a lot, which is part of the reason I say the nurses are, you know, they should be, uh, I think, respected as much as humanly possible for the work they did and as, as of the physicians and respiratory therapists and all the allied health. Uh, the difference, though, between the previous waves and this wave is it's pretty obvious. It's clear, at least, you know, as we see them in the hospital, uh, that the fourth wave is just beginning. And what I just finished a week of ICU, what we're seeing is that almost all patients, there's a handful of exceptions, but almost all patients are unvaccinated, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a shame. It's uh, It's entirely preventable. And... You know, the the what we're what we're noticing is that in the third wave, a lot of people were just scared and did whatever they could to to get by, and people were afraid of if they needed to go to an ICU, whether it be the treatment for them, would it be ventilators, would it be medications, uh, would it be the human resources, uh, like you said, the nurses who are you know leaving or physicians who are leaving. So people were quite worried about that. In the fourth wave, what I'm noticing is there's a lot of regret. A lot of families are coming in. Um, and they're saying, you know, I, I regret not getting the vaccine. I, I waited for, you know, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing for me. Uh, I didn't take it for this reason or for that reason. Uh, and they all regret it. They say, I wish I could have it. And a lot of our patients ask us, can, can we have the vaccine now? And unfortunately, once you have the disease, it's too late. Right. But people are, are now more regretful and, and they're waiting. They're on the sidelines for a variety of reasons. And I would encourage anybody who's listening to get vaccinated. It really is that simple. So that's what you're hearing from people who come in. They're not belligerently anti-vax. It's, it sounds like it's the exact opposite. Like, what was I thinking by not getting vaccinated? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, at first I didn't know what to, what to see. I, I didn't know if I would see what you see, like, south of the border, where you see the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers and uh, all this rhetoric that comes with it. But, in fact, what you actually notice is it's not that. It's people just don't believe, and, and they look at Dr. Google and... They, they say, you know, I should have got vaccinated, I was too busy, or I was waiting to see how other people would do, and I want to see the long-term effects of COVID, of the, of that, of the uh, vaccine, and then they regret it. And unfortunately, it's almost, almost universally, every family I speak to, they say, you know, I wish we did this, I wish we did it differently. Uh, Dr. Golan, how has this affected you personally? With regards to the fourth wave or in general? Well, just especially uh, with the unvaccinated in the ICUs with COVID now. Well, I I mean, my job is to go and take care of people and, and do the best of my ability. So I don't think from a clinical point of view, it, it affected me in that way. I'm, I'm still doing my best. I'm mm-hmm. still as compassionate as before. I've had friends ask me, is it hard to be compassionate when someone didn't get vaccinated? And you know, I, I have little kids at home. I have three little ones who cannot get vaccinated. So I'm potentially bringing home COVID to them. And I said, you know what? People are misinformed. So it, it, it is it is what it is. We're, all you could do is inform them better. And part of the reason I, I agreed to come on is to help with that. Because if I can help a few people get vaccinated and unburden some of the the resources for the healthcare system, then I'm happy to do it. It is exhausting, though. I won't lie. It is um I, I wish it was different. I wish you know, this way would be over. And I wish, uh, you know, COVID-19 would not be carrying into 2022, but I, I suspect it will go beyond that even. So mm. it's unfortunate. Well, that was my next question. Do you think it'll get worse before it gets better? I think certainly it will get worse. I don't think we're going to get back to the third wave in terms of how bad it was. I think the fact that the majority of the population is vaccinated, that majority of people now know the new normal. They know how to wear a mask. They know when to, when not to. They know what to do. Uh, people have gotten used to working from home. I think I think that has helped. I think the big unknown is the unvaccinated, whether they're going to create new variant strains mm-hmm. that are then going to affect everybody else. And the other unknown is how are kids going to fare when they all go back to school and not almost, well, effectively none of them under 12 are vaccinated. And how are they going to fare for the first few months until they can't be vaccinated? Right. I think we're going to address that tomorrow on on Fight Back. Uh, still to be decided, but uh, that is on the minds of many parents and grandparents. Uh, Dr. Golan, thank you so much for your time and for all of your amazing good work. Of course.
course, you're very welcome. Dr. Ayal Golan is an intensive care doctor at McKenzie Health's Cortellucci Vaughn Hospital. Jane for Libby, back on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane early tomorrow and then on Fight Back with you. Bob Comsick in the news coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Should Ontario nurses get a raise? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We know they've been shouldering much of the frontline work during this pandemic. Uh, putting their own lives at risk, literally, to take care of COVID-19 patients. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Hundreds of emergency room physicians in this province think that they deserve raises. They've signed an open letter to Premier Doug Ford demanding the provincial PCs increase the pay of critical care nurses and repeal Bill 124. The letter claims emergency departments across the province are in crisis, not because of a lack of beds or ventilators, but because acute care nursing colleagues are leaving in droves. It goes on to say, quote, several nurses have died, hundreds have become ill with COVID, and now nurses are leaving their profession in unprecedented numbers due to burnout, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the utter disrespect they face from the Ontario government, unquote. Bill 124 was introduced by the Ford Tories in 2019 and limits regular annual salary increases for public sector workers, including nurses, to 1% for each 12-month period. Joining us first to discuss, Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. Charlene, good of you to join us again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Charlene, you sent a similar letter to the Premier last month. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, we did. I mean, we've been uh, trying to deal with this Bill 124 uh, pre-COVID, as you said. It uh, was introduced in 2019. We strongly encouraged the Ford government not to do that for frontline workers and the healthcare system because in 2019, we were already experiencing, you know, severe uh, staff shortages and this was not going to help us with that solution. And then we all have lived through the COVID experience. And now, as you said, uh, these frontline workers, particularly these, uh, you know, regulated staff, the nursing, both, uh, as you said, the registered nurses, but also registered practical nurses and other regulatory staff have, uh, you know, really been called uh, to do the unimaginable over the last 20 months. They obviously did. They put their calling and their profession ahead of their own safety in many instances. Like you said, they've been infected. Some of them have died. Uh, Their family have caught COVID because their loved one went to work in these uh, facilities. So there is a real crisis. And we've been dealing with nurses saying to us over and over again that they've had enough. We polled our nurses recently and of them, 41% said that they are considering leaving nursing. Many of them already have, uh, which is what the doctors are talking about. You are seeing emergency rooms, uh, intensive care units, uh, wards uh, not have those nurses available. Uh, Ontarians are experiencing delayed uh, pickup and rescheduling of surgeries. Other health services are being delayed. They should absolutely be concerned about that. And uh, this crisis, the burnout, like you mentioned, um, you know, these nurses and these regulatory staff have been crying for help for so long and you can only do it for so long. You know, the sounding, they're sounding alarms. They're uh, talking about the staffing crisis that they're, you know, working long hours, which is a health and safety issue, double shift. Uh, you know, they share their really emotional stories with me. You talk about PTSD. Uh, can you imagine being the family member of somebody or representing a family member uh, when you've got a patient in front of you on a ventilator dying? Uh, you know, the mental strain that that puts on these frontline nurses and also the physical. I mean, working short staff is dangerous. And they are saying that their own health and safety is at risk here. 
Nobody seems to be listening. You've got the front line crying for help. You've got the doctors uh, sticking up and advocating for them. You've got unions doing it. You have all of their regulatory associations doing it. Uh, why the Ford government is not repealing Bill 124 is, you know, a real question. But more so, even without that bill, these uh, frontline staff are crying for help, and we all need to be very concerned about that. Charlene, on behalf of SEIU Healthcare, you've asked for a minimum wage for registered practical nurses of $35 an hour. Any response to that? Absolutely no responses. Uh, you hear, as in that article, you've got spokespeople on behalf of the Conservative government that say, you know, we absolutely uh, respect what they've done. We're incredibly grateful uh, those frontline workers are saying that those words don't cut it anymore. They really need to see actions put behind all of those words. We need the premier to repeal Bill 124, allow these workers to negotiate uh, wage increases, but also increase the staffing levels and benefits like psychological help for their PTSD that they're suffering from. Before I let you go, uh, how much are nurses making now, uh, registered and practical nurses? Can you give us a bit of an idea or an average? Uh, I can talk on behalf of the registered practical nurses. Their uh, average rate is around $30, $31 an hour. Okay, so you're calling to make it $35, uh, no no lower than $35. At a minimum, yes. And really, we're calling for a whole health human resources plan, which would include, you know, registered nurses and all of it. Uh, This is... The, the inconsistency of wages across the entire sector is also a real problem right now. Uh, you know, they're in competitive, uh, if they're in a competitive uh, situation among nursing homes, hospitals, home care. Uh, the government has to come forward, sit down with uh, the frontline workers and their bargaining agents to have one human resource plan for the province. Charlene, thank you so much for your time and the recap. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Charlene Stewart is president of SEIU Healthcare. Let's bring in Helen Winter, who's a registered nurse and works in the emergency department at an Ontario hospital, and Dr. Chris Kiefer, an ER doctor at an Ontario hospital who is directly involved with the open letter to Premier Ford. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Jane. Thanks so much for having us on. Helen, tell us what's going on from a firsthand perspective. Uh, From a first-hand perspective right now, in the department I work work in, in the hospital, which is no different from any other hospital across the GTA, we have lost over 50% of our experienced eMERGE nurses. Uh, Our schedule, we cannot fill those positions. Our schedule is constantly having huge holes, which now means sometimes we're doing double workloads. You've lost. You, yeah, I, I believe it. You've lost half of your nursing staff. Yes, we have. And so, how is that working then in terms of scheduling the remaining fifty percent? Well, we do have new graduates coming on. Uh, it takes years of training to become an experienced uh, emerge nurse. Years, and these new grads, it's so hard on them. They need people to work with. And the guidance is just not there because it has left. So does this mean you are working a lot of overtime, Helen? Uh, do you have any choice as to how many hours you work above and beyond a regular week? How is that working? We do have choice. Uh, many of us have cut way back just because we're just not coping. You cannot work a 16 or a 12, even an 8-hour shift, and absorb and metabolize the level of human suffering that you see um, without time off. If, if we had more staff, we could have time to recover. Helen, give us an idea of what your day is like. Uh, what happens during your workday? Well, you know, that is the beauty of Emerge because one never knows. We accept everybody who comes in the door because everybody needs to be there. So we never know, and we have to accommodate everybody that comes. Uh, there's been so many closures of primary care services or lack of access that those people need to come too. So a, a, a regular day, there is no such thing. But suffice it to say, you're, you're standing, you're running around, you're, you're dealing with people constantly for how many hours a day? Uh, anywhere from 8 to 16. 
regular regular scheduled shifts are 8 to 12, but many of us are staying the extra four hours just because we just can't walk away from our colleagues or patients. And then, of course, you have your home lives, you, you have personal lives, um, and I would think that that's got to be taking, that's got to be suffering for a lot of people working as registered nurses as well. Definitely. It's, it's very hard to, to manage both. And uh, anybody who's been close to a nurse knows full well it, it takes a lot out of us. Let's go to Dr. Kiefer now, ER doctor, uh, who was involved in this open letter to Premier Ford. Dr. Kiefer, what motivated the letter to Doug Ford? Well, I think uh, it was a real wake-up call for me, um, seeing that several times in the last couple of months, we've had to close down a large section of our emergency department. You know, we're very lucky to, for the hospital to dedicate some new space to us, um, you know, to accommodate the need to space patients more. And just, you know, our, we have an old emergency department where I work and in many other areas. Um, so we have this great space. We didn't have the nursing staff to, to run it. Um, and so we had to close it down and we were cramming patients in the context of the far more contagious Delta variant into smaller areas. And that was my wake-up call. Um, and then talking with the nurses and, you know, Helen, Helen is an amazing colleague of mine. Um, these, are, these are very strong professionals. Um, you know, the kind of things that we, we deal with and see every day, the kind of abuse that nurses face, even pre-COVID, just at the best of times, there's physical violence, verbal violence. We, we, we tend to take it all. And to see, see nurses like this, you know, breaking down at work and crying is, is unbelievable. Again, these are some of the toughest humans that I've ever met. So it was, it was a wake-up call to me, and I felt like I needed to do something to show my support. And really, in the midst of morale that's just, you know, in the boots, that little action has, has been beautiful. It's brought us together um, as doctors and nurses, um, and uh, I, th- I think it's what's sustaining us. And it's just so inspiring to see these nurses who are so burned out and so at the, at the end of their wits um, actually taking even extra time, their home time, to advocate for their profession and for um, the average Ontarian and the, the current and future emergency department patients. Dr. Kiefer, is it, say, is it safe to say that the situation is so desperate it's at a breaking point? It's a critical situation because, uh, as, uh, as my colleague was saying, I mean, I, I kind of call it a domino effect, right? Um, we lose more and more senior nurses. They're, they're not around to uh, mentor the, the junior colleagues that may or may not be coming in to replace them. Um, and the workloads for those that remain become higher and higher. Um, so it's, it's a domino effect. And if we don't stop this and get on it right away, and if the government doesn't take bold action, um, this crisis is going to turn into something very, very serious. And safety will be on the line. And I, I honestly think that lives will be lost as a result. Now, I know you, the letter, the open letter to Premier Ford was just sent yesterday calling for a wage increase for uh, registered nurses and to take them out of Bill 124 so that they can get a substantial, meaningful increase. How likely, and I'll ask this to both of you, Dr. Kiefer, how likely is it that the Ford Tories will give nurses a raise? Well, you know, first of all, the letter was actually addressed to, to, you know, our fellow Ontarians, right? Because we were all aware and we're very heartened by the fact that Ontarians across the province came out in unprecedented numbers onto their balconies, onto their doorsteps in the early days of the pandemic and banged their pots and pans at 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. every evening. And that's what we really need now. That was a beautiful show of support that strengthened us. It gave us the, the confidence to go into work, um, knowing that we were putting ourselves and our families at risk. But right now, this is really what nurses need, what the, what the healthcare system needs in terms of uh, us carrying forward. So the letter was, was you know, trying to harness that energy. Um, address to Ontarians to, to bang those pots and pans, whether it's uh, physical pots and pans or, or whether that's a metaphor to make their voices heard. You know, I, I am hopeful that the Ford government is going to listen. Um, you know, they they need votes. Um, and I think they're going to recognize that they made a mistake here. They've corrected their path um, before. They've made errors in the past. They've admitted that. I think that's, uh, that's a good thing. And I think they'll do it again in this regard. This, this uh, issue is getting incredible traction. I mean, I think this is the fourth media interview I've given in, in 24 hours. Um, people are, they care a lot about this issue and they see the sacrifices that uh, healthcare workers have made, particularly nurses. And I think they're going to heed this, this cry for help from, from nurses. So I'm, I'm actually very optimistic. So Helen, a two-parter to yeah. you before we wrap up. How likely do you think it will be that, it's, that you will get uh, a meaningful raise? And what can Ontario residents do to support your efforts? Well, I can answer both of those with one. 
the one thing that I love more than anything about working in healthcare is that it is the great leveler. We are all the same. We all have bodies. We all share the need for healthcare. And right at the front lines uh, of both education and healthcare, because teachers are under this bill too, at the front lines is where it affects every single Ontarian. And seeing as we're all voters, I have full faith that the Ford government will care about every single Ontarian and put the money where it's accessed by us all. It's what our Canadian Equality Initiative, that's what it lies on. It's right here. We're the front lines. We need help. Bill 124 was actually enacted in 2019 before COVID. Things have changed. It's time for the bill to change. We will leave it there. I thank you both for your time and all the best. Stay strong. I, I don't need to tell you that. You should, you're the ones who can give lessons and strength. And we, we really, we appreciate your time today and all your efforts over the last year and a half. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for having us on, Jane. Helen Winter, registered nurse. She works in the emergency department at an Ontario hospital. And Dr. Chris Kiefer, an ER doctor at an Ontario hospital who was involved with that open letter to Ontarians and Premier Doug Ford. Jane, for Libby, and coming up next, we hear from a doctor at the heart of the COVID crisis. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from vacation on Thursday. Our Tuesday strategy panelists join me today as we get closer to the halfway point of the federal election campaign. We welcome in John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Hello to you all. Hello, Jane. Hi there. The latest survey on voter intentions is not good news for Justin Trudeau. According to Leger, his Liberals have fallen to 30% support versus the Aaron O'Toole Conservatives, who now have 34% support. The Jagmeet Singh Conservatives, or NDP rather, they are gaining with 24% support. John, what is going on in the minds of voters this week? Well, I think the I think the voters are starting to starting to check in and uh, and realize that there is an election, and I think they're still t- kind of questioning themselves and trying to question the leaders as to why we're in an election. I think that's starting to uh, permeate around there, and I think that the first couple of weeks of the election campaign, um, you know, the Liberals have have failed to define why this election should be happening and and notwithstanding that of course but the the tragedy that's been happening in afghanistan um has completely taken the liberals off message uh and and you've seen not only from the other leaders quite rightly saying you know why are we doing this uh, you know you've known about afghanistan or the threats of afghanistan for months um and knowing that the u.s were going to pull out at, at all you know by the end of the month and all this why would you want to call an election but then you're also getting people uh, Afghans who have made it here to Canada pointing their finger to Justin Trudeau. So all of that messaging, uh, is, is, you know, getting the, pr- the prime minister off message with respect to what he wants to do and why he wants to say that there's an election, not least of which, of course, the, the fourth wave and, and what's happening. And then, of course, in British Columbia with the fault forest fires, there's such a host of issues that are happening. And Canadians are starting to say, well, why are we in this election? Why can't the prime minister just, you know, call parliament back, you know, not call the election, but call, call parliament back and, and, and pass legislation that he's been passing for the last two years. And I think that's causing a huge amount of problems with, uh, with this, uh, with the Liberal leader. Karen, what do you see? Uh, two weeks and a, I guess two weeks and one day into this campaign. Well, it's funny, Jane, like, you know, you know, as, as John said, elections matter. And elections are, are funny processes, uh, which Charles will attest to as well, in that, um, you know, people, when people tune in and when the direction is set, it, it, it shifts depending on what, what election you're in. And, and what I'm seeing is that people are actually, to John's point, paying attention. In some of the backyard discussions I've been having, people are really interested in this election and why it's being called. And there is not a sense that people are going to vote uh, based on the performance of the government during the pandemic, but they're going to be voting on issues that are in front of us, not behind us. And there's a real sense that um, 
the, the trepidation they may have had towards Aaron O'Toole as a leader by not knowing him, not knowing what he stands for, um, some of that is actually shifting in the public perception, and, and we're seeing that in the polls and the way that he's come out and run his campaign. And there's, there's to the question of, you know, what is this campaign and how is it shaping up? It's actually shaping up much earlier than I thought it would. Um, I thought it would be pretty open until after the debates, perhaps, after Labor Day was when the campaign would really kick off. But now I'm wondering if the vote doesn't actually get locked in sooner than that, and that we see that as long as there's no major missteps, that the momentum will continue uh, in the way it's been going. Interesting. Charles, what do you think at this point? Yeah, I'm in agreement with the other two, actually. I mean, uh, there's a malaise right now in, in summer months, and people are tired, and people really don't want an election from all points. But at the same time, those that are engaged are voting early. Mm-hmm. And they don't, you know, this is going to happen quick. And, and there's some real issues to resolve. And I'm in agreement with all. I want to look forward. I want to know what each of them are going to do as we move ahead. And, of course, in Justin's argument for, or the prime minister's argument for having an election now is because it's before things get back in gear when we need to fight inflation and continue to fight COVID and look for recovery of those of the economy. We have a lot of jobs out there, but we need, of course, to do more. There's other challenges before us. And it has been challenging in a minority government, and he's trying to get a majority in order to move those things ahead, and that's his argument. But, of course, a lot of people aren't buying that at this point, and there's a lot of mudslinging, and it's not coming from mm-hmm. the party leaders, which is important here, because I think this people are going to look for a progressive, more positive tone, and unfortunately, there's a lot of poison out there around the Trudeau rallies. It's very disruptive. Um, and I, you know, I got to tell you, O'Toole's been handling himself effectively by denouncing those. And that actually looks good on him. Oh, I as agree. A, as a go yeah. For it. yeah. Well, let's talk about the protesters since you brought that up, Charles. On the weekend, forced the cancellation of an event for Justin Trudeau on Friday in Bolton, and delayed one on Sunday in Cambridge. How is this affecting the campaign, both for Trudeau and his opponents, John? Well, I think that, you know, this kind of protest is just uncalled for. It's, uh, I think all party leaders have condoned, have um, condemned it, uh, and, and with all the strongest terms. And I, and I think that that's, including the media who are, are trying to expose it, uh, along with the authorities, the RCMP and others as to, you know, who are these protesters? Are they, are they professional organizers? We're hearing in the media and other social media, um, discussions that there might be some organized attempts of, of people and who are, are saying, Hey, here's where the prime minister is going and, and, you know, let's, let's follow him. So there seems to be an organized attempt. Um, but it is a, it is a fraction, uh, you know, of, of the population representation of the population. It mm-hmm. seems to be the, the anti-vaxxers who are, who are, you know, just trying to get the message across to the prime minister that, that, you know, his, his point of, of vaccines are, are, are against it. But nonetheless, I think it's a problem, um, and, and what it does is it, it forces the prime minister to be off message, in some cases not to have a message, but it also forces the other leaders to have to, def- uh, to respond to it, and, and luckily they've all condemned it. Uh, Karen, what do you think about these protests? Does it garner empathy for Justin Trudeau from Canadians, or does it take him off message to the point where people are listening to him less? Well, I, I think... Um, it, it, I, I, you know, I, at one point, I think he was reveling in the fact that he was he's a vaccine supporter and in the backdrop of the anti-vaxxers was only um, consolidating his position. But but I think when the other parties came out and, and, as John pointed out, condemned the behavior, he didn't have... That was no longer the message that was being projected. And having to cancel events and having to get knocked off your message and then having to respond to protesters. And some of the responses have actually been a little... Um, to be candid, a little strange, uh, where he said, you know, they're not listening to me. Maybe Aaron O'Toole should tell them to go get vaccinated, which I thought was a really strange response. And it, I think it speaks to the fact that he is not, um, he, 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 he's been knocked off a little bit of his messaging and knocked off, knocked off balance a bit and not appreciating where the public sentiment's at. So I think there's a number of things that are, are coming into play at the very time when he's, you know, these protesters are, are, are causing him to rethink how he's going to re-engage with the public. And, and I, I think it's not it's not going well. Well, certainly, Charles, it is in Aaron O'Toole's best interest to disassociate himself from these types of individuals. Um, but there are people within his party, uh, like Cheryl Gallant, who are very supportive uh, of what 
uh, these anti-vax protesters are saying. So it's it's a fine line for Aaron O'Toole as he tries to bridge um, the more extreme parts of his party and uh, the more progressive parts. Yeah, it sure is. And um, he's going to need um, the anti-vax and the more extreme members of his party uh, to support him. And they will. Frankly, he's just going to uh, denounce uh, misbe- you know, the bad behavior, and they'll say, yeah, that's fine, but they'll still support him regardless because he's not necessarily condemning anyone specifically. But at the same time, Trudeau can't be underestimated here. He, is, he, he takes up a fight. He, 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 doesn't have, he hasn't always taken the easy road to get to where he's been. Mm-hmm. And I think this will inspire him a little bit more to, be, uh, to challenge O'Toole to really denounce these individuals and to not only just associate himself on, on, by way of words and so forth, but there's, there is an allegiance to the Conservative Party, not just federally, but certainly provincially. And this is, you know, some of the struggles Doug Ford is having, too. They will have to find a way to balance the, those two. But um, I, I, think, I think things will change in the coming weeks, and uh, I, I suspect the prime minister will step it up a bit more. Nobody wants – I don't want a negative campaign, but at this point, he's being forced into responding in a manner that's being very toxic to him. So he has to, he has to take a better – a bigger stand on that. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Our Tuesday strategy panelists join us, uh, Charles Souza, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco. I want to hear from you. Uh, we're seeing liberal support wane, and yet we're seeing momentum building for the New Democrats under Jagmeet Singh and for the Conservatives under Aaron O'Toole. Are you one of these traditional liberal supporters who are considering voting for the New Democrats or the Conservatives that you could go either way rather than stick with the vote uh, that is traditionally the way you cast your ballot. I'd like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-744-740. John, what about that? Where is the liberal support going? Is it 50-50, Conservatives NDP? Well, it seems to be going towards the Conservatives. And I think the the key thing here that people look at is seed projections. So social posters who will look at the numbers and say, okay, well, where, where are these numbers coming from, both from the demographics and also regionally? And it looks like the, the gap is narrowing with women, where at the beginning that they, they were hugely supportive of the prime minister, but now they seem to be slipping and going towards their own tool. Men voters in the, in the 40, 50 plus are almost all exclusively going to their own tool as far as the changes. The young, the young um, voters are still kind of mixed with liberals leading and, and the NDP uh, getting a lot of that support because of the work that Jagmeet Singh's been doing on TikTok, which, of course, is all the rave these days. Um, but also regionally, you know, when the 905, the 416 are key battlegrounds, Quebec is going to be important for the liberals with respect to can, can they overtake the bloc and take some of the seats that the bloc won last time and in British Columbia. Those are battlegrounds, and, and if they start shifting... And that's where it seems to be going towards Aaron O'Toole. That's bad news for the prime minister, good news for Aaron O'Toole, because these polling numbers can, can shift, but it's where they shift in regions by demographics. Who are the people that are going to go out and vote? Uh, and that's going to be critical. And I think, too, Karen, uh, was either this morning, I guess it was last evening, Jagmeet uh, was saying it, to uh, younger people, get out and vote, exercise your franchise. So these are people, younger people who traditionally have not voted or are more apathetic. He's trying to garner their vote as well. And that could be why we're seeing a little bit of bump in his momentum as well. No question. There's, uh, you know, because he has been reaching out to an audience that he is connecting to. uh, And that's in turn, showing up in the polling results. But again, you know, the demise of the Green Party, I think, is working to the NDP benefit as well. I'm not saying that a natural Green vote would necessarily go to an NDP, but, you know, generally speaking, it's a, you know, it's a safe place to park your vote, safer perhaps than the Conservative Party. But, the you know, to John's point, that, that what that polling is showing has certainly been reinforced in my anecdotal conversations with some of my, you know, my friends. Again, diehard long-term liberals that are looking at their, looking at their options, 
Whereas before they wouldn't even, it was just a, you know, go into the voting booth, vote liberal. Now they're pausing on that and they're looking around and they're, they're looking at the other candidates and they're, they are looking at Aaron O'Toole very seriously. But Charles, it often happens in the middle of campaigns that voters do flirt with uh, casting a ballot for a different party and then ultimately come back to where they traditionally vote. Uh, do you see this happening in this particular campaign or will people move and stay locked into that decision? These polls do two things. One, they're emboldening the Conservative Party to give their base some, some incentive to get out and vote because we can win this. That's the feeling that they're getting. At the same time, pollings of this nature will be argued as a way to scare the NDP not to vote NDP because you'll vote for a conservative government and the left have to unite in some respects and then they vote liberal. So I've heard both arguments. We read that all the time. To the extent that that may happen, well, it didn't happen in Ontario. The surge of the NDP was more than enough, obviously, to, to, um, uh, do away with the liberal, you know, do, do with the official status of the of liberal party in Ontario, and to the extent would that be able to be case uh, federally? I don't see it. Jack Mead is doing a good job, but to the extent he can actually rally across the country to the same extent, um, I, I'm not sure. But it is a matter of pulling the vote and getting people inspired to get out there, and uh, and that this this polling may do both. They may inspire more people to vote for the liberal party, knowing that the conservatives may have a chance. And the conservatives obviously want to get their their people out to vote, too. So both things could happen. All right. We'll take a call here before we change to provincial politics. Let's go to Melanie in High Park. Go ahead, Melanie. Thank you so much for doing this topic. Um, I was really on the fence as to who I would vote for. But when I heard Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, say that it was okay for 49 churches to burn down, it's understandable. Violence and evil are never understandable. And yet they're, they're pointing fingers. It's, it, it, it's shocking to me that Trudeau... Okay, Melanie, I'm going to let you go there. Uh, does anybody know what Melanie is referencing? <laughs> is it in relation to the schools that were burnt down, the Catholic church, oh, sorry, the Catholic churches that were burnt down Possibly. as a result of the residential schools? Possibly, yes. Any yeah. thoughts on that, Karen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, again, it's an issue that we're all wrestling with. And in fairness to Trudeau and all the parties, I don't think any of them have found the right messaging around how we approach uh, the truth and reconciliation recommendations and how we actually um, are able to resolve and, and reconcile and, and reunite as a country. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Aaron said it's time to bring the flags up. You know, at some point it is time to bring the flags up. That being said, what has to happen between now and that moment for us to truly move forward as a country? And, and I don't think any of the, to be candid, I don't think any of the, uh, the parties have actually had delivered a clear message on that. No, it is yeah. fascinating, John, isn't it, that Indigenous issues and reconciliation has not come up yet as, as a big issue. No, and I think some of the party leaders are are talking about it, and I think a lot of them are going to be making mentions in the in the policy platforms. And I'm sure during the debate next week, both the French and the English debate, it'll it'll come up. But but Jane, just before we switch provincial, I want to make a point about the uh, switching voters NDP because I think Charles mentioned that, and he's right with respect to in the past. What you find is when the conservatives seem to be doing well. Then all of a sudden the liberals will say, you know, you got to vote strategic and they would try to do all of their strategy to get NDP voters to come back to liberals. But that only happens when, when two things happen. One is if the conservative leader is hated and he's such a, in a, such a contrast, like Andrew Scheer was and, and others in the past. But, but, but with Aaron O'Toole, that's not the case. And also the NDP leader has to be somewhat unpop- unpopular. But but judgment seen was very popular. So to, to to jog NDP votes away based on those two factors is going to be a lot harder this time than ever before. Hmm. All right. We will switch now to provincial politics, the vaccine certificate. Last week at this time when we were chatting, Premier Ford and his cabinet ministers were still touting the party line that they would not be issuing vaccine certificates. They did not want to see a split society. They were saying those email receipts you get from the Ministry of Health are good enough uh, to show proof of vaccination. A week later, that has changed. Uh, what do you think has gone on there, Charles, in the background? Um, I know it's how the premiers operate in the past. Um, they're tough decisions to make initially, so he wants to see how it plays out. 
And the majority have now come out saying we want these vaccines, uh, passports or documentation standardized across the province. Business people are asking for it. Uh, he's put the onus on the federal government to come up with something, but of course other provinces have now stepped up. And he can respond to that base that are opposed, saying, hey, you don't have to be vaccinated, but I have a duty now to respond to all these individuals that are requesting it. So we're going to standardize something to that effect and get vaccinated or not. This is how it's going to be. And he's not going to take the lead on this. He's going to look, uh, he's going to cite the, the, the business community, uh, the boards of trade, and, and all of the schools and the, and, and the bureaucracy, all of whom are calling for it, of course, medical health. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think, Karen, it's better to isolate 18 percent of the population, uh, those eligible to get a vaccine who've yet to get one shot, uh, than than 82 percent of the population. No question. And the what I've certainly learned in my workplace is that uh, we brought in a mandatory vaccine policy for all employees that are customer facing. And so if you work in the accounting department, you don't need to come into the office, you don't necessarily need a vaccine, but if you're a personal trainer and you're working directly with the public, you do. Mm-hmm. And it actually encouraged uh, a number of staff to go get vaccinated. And so when looking at what Quebec's experience was and BC's experience was, introducing a vaccine pa- passport with consequences actually moved the needle for a small percentage of the population. So it's not going to be, it probably won't be 10%, but maybe it'll be 5 And and that matters uh, when we're talking about percentage points. That matters. And so, however, the premier feels about a split, split society, the anecdotal evidence is suggesting that if you do put consequences towards not being vaccinated, you will shift some people's perceptions around that. that. Mm-hmm. And then once you do, to your point, Jane, you know, if you get into a situation where the ERs are overwhelmed and the schools are about to shut down, and 80% of us, 85% of us have been vaccinated, it, it does become a, a question, really, of, of fairness. And, you know, how is it that the, those who did, took their steps to, 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 to combat the p- pandemic, how are we treated the same way as the 15% who did not? Right. And, and that's not a sustainable position. And, John, it could even be seen as negligent uh, by, by not putting in this extra protective measure. Well, just, and some people will see it that way. And I think at the end of the day, you have to keep forcing that vaccines are important uh, and that try to make it as accessible as possible as this government and other governments have over the course of the pandemic. But the challenge, I think, here is, and, and, and both Charles and, and Tim were, were successful politicians, and they know that once you make a decision, or either in government or as a councillor, uh, you, you stick with it, but you do understand that things shift and people, you listen to the organizations and, and I think the premier has done that. And, and I would rather have a leader who understands that he made a decision, but it's ebbed and flowed, it's changed and he's made the decision for the right thing to do, uh, which is what he's doing. So at the end of the day, people will not remember that he switched his, his, his mind, but he will remember that he did the right thing. But it's not just on this issue, John. He has repeatedly come out very strongly in favor of, of one way of moving forward and then has reversed his decision. Wouldn't it make more sense to say, listen, I need to get all the information and then I'll come to a decision rather than going with his gut first and then having to backtrack? Well, ideally, that would be the case. But I also think, too, that you're dealing with a movement, uh, a pandemic that is changing on a regular basis. You've got science and health officials who are changing their messages all the time. So it is a moving, unscripted, uh, uh, you know, pandemic that we're dealing with. So without a doubt, you know, you want to make sure that you make a decision and and stick with it. But it does change, and it has changed over the while. We've seen that with masking. We've seen that with vaccines. uh, And this is no different. I'm speaking with our strategy panelists here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane, for Libya. And since you all are experts at strategy, I want to know what you think about uh, the reasoning behind or the strategy behind the premier not making a public appearance since July 30th. Even Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader, called him out on that this morning, which was somewhat ironic because she hasn't exactly been out there either. Uh, what do you what do you think uh, that's all about, Charles? Um. I, I would. He's available, obviously, because he's campaigning. He's out in in the hustings. He's meeting with a lot of people. He's not taking any questions. And part of it is, in part, is I think, is regards to COVID uh, and the vaccine passport discussions, because it's a major decision that he has to make, and he's been struggling with it. 
The other may be the Conservative Party federally is asking him just tone it down and stay away from politics uh, because, you know, they don't always align between the province and, and, and the federal government. Sometimes it can work against them. Um, but at this point, I would just, I have to believe he's just uncertain about what he's going to say and how he's going to answer to a difficult decision that he has to make in respect to providing some direction on these passports and some other matters that came at him, like the uh, the donations, invoicing, and, and other things of that sort were very, you know, strange issues for him to have to respond to. He hasn't. And I think that's partly why. Karen, the strategy behind Premier Ford deciding not to make a public appearance for a month now. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of what Charles was alluding to, is that there's questions he doesn't want to answer. So as long as he's can't, you know, going and making these appearances on his own agenda, he's not called to answer anything that he's not prepared or doesn't want to, to answer. And it can range from the COVID passport to the federal election to, are you know, are the kids actually safe going back to school to what is your plan going to be if, you know, if the numbers go up? You know, there's so much that he probably just doesn't have answers for that he's just decided to take the position that he's just not going to put himself in that position. Interesting, though, John, you know, here's a guy who was out there every day, week after week, month after month, taking every question, um, wanting to show guidance and leadership, and then going quiet for a month seems uh, to contrast his earlier behavior. Well, listen, uh, critics are going to complain about everything. They complained when he was on TV too many times and every day and all that kind of stuff. And now, of course, the critics are saying, well, he's not on TV, not enough, and he's not. He was up north making announcements and, and making press releases and, and making announcements on a regular basis. So he's been out there doing it. And also, there's a federal election, and the, le- and the legislature's not in session. So there's a lot of things and a lot of reasons why he doesn't need to be out there. Uh, and, and he's making announcements and he's governing, and his ministers are doing announcements every day. So, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where... The NDP will always say, well, he's on TV too much and he's not on TV enough. You know, people people don't care. They're not going to see it. Government's working and the federal election's going on and he doesn't want to interfere. All right. We will leave it there for this week. Thank you all for your perspectives and your opinions. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, everyone. Good afternoon. Thanks so much, Jane. John We'll talk to you next Tuesday. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stint, CEO at Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. And coming up in the second half hour of Fight Back, Ontario doctors go to the Premier asking for a pay raise for nurses. We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.